When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast is equivalent to a TVMA rating, thanks to the author's strong and frequent use of adult language and graphic recollection of her sexual escapades. We strongly advise listening alone or with an extremely open-minded, politically incorrect companion, such as a gay bestie. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of How Bitches Are Made. I'm your host, Rachel Melvin. I hope you guys are enjoying this season as much as I am. It's been really fun and fulfilling to share my experiences with all of you and hear about yours. I always get feedback about people going through very similar experiences, and it's really gratifying because that is the whole point of me doing this, so that people like me who are younger can learn from my mistakes or at least have a little bit more knowledge when making their own to avoid some of the turmoil that I experienced. But um, the turmoil is very important because these are the lessons that shape and strengthen you. Suffice it to say, our community is growing, and it is because of all of you and your support. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so much. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to this badass community. We're really glad that you're here and that you're along for the ride. So let's get this ride started without any further ado, because this week's story is the one that I've been teasing you guys about for a while. So we're finally here. Enjoy. The following is a true story, and today, that's not as sad for me to admit. Names have not been changed, because frankly, these are all good people. Chapter 16, The Perfect Prick. As a kid, the Home Depot felt like a boring abyss of gray aisles with lackluster, unexciting items that were already opened and seemed used. I couldn't understand what drew my parents there in the first place, let alone why they seemed so insistent upon spending so much time there, aimlessly wandering up and down the aisles for whatever they seemed to be looking for. Of course, those mysteries would be solved once I became an adult, trying to chase down orange aprons for help so I could spend my own hard-earned dollars on things I didn't want, but very much needed. While I'd done my best to pass along the responsibilities of having to go to a hardware store to my landlords, that became an impossibility once I'd become my own. Daily trips to Home Depot were about as unavoidable as HPV and just as unpleasant, and situations like that of the infamous oven weren't doing much to curtail my disdain for these little visits either. Nor were mistakes on my end that kept me returning unnecessarily time and time again. But all of that would change one Labor Day weekend. Both my parents had driven in from NorCal to help put the finishing touches on my house, along with my friend Laura, who had driven in from Los Angeles to offer her assistance painting. We were in the final stretch. The finish line was just within reach, and Home Depot was about to disappear in my rearview mirror forever. That is, 
until my dad and I went to place the crowning jewel of a mantle we'd built together atop the fireplace. Measure twice and cut once. It's the cardinal rule of construction, and I'd been too eager to use my circular saw to heat it. I hung my head in disbelief, then turned my attention back to the problem standing before me, as if it were a riddle the tape measure wanted me to solve. Obviously, this wasn't human error. It couldn't be. It had to be a trick. After all, why would I ever put myself in the position of having to make a third trip to Home Depot in a single day? I could feel my dad dancing between empathy and sweet justice as he beamed on, as if every mismeasurement he'd ever made had suddenly come bubbling to the surface and passed on to me, validating common, unspoken failures of do-it-yourselfers while freeing him from any future embarrassment. Irritated for having forced myself back to the lumber department, I threw my tired body into my convertible with Laura in tow. My parents had elected her to serve as my company for the trip, knowing her humor and Sagittarian energy were the right candidate to interfere with any further potential frustration on my part. And believe me, there would be plenty. It was mid-afternoon on a holiday, after all, which meant the parking lot was sure to be flooded with cars and the checkout lines flooded with people. People who were trying to get back to their own projects they no doubt abandoned in the wake of their own inexperience and forgetfulness. That's all the mid-afternoon crowd of a Home Depot is, by the way. Fuck-ups, failures, and husbands trying to dig themselves out of a hole with their partners. Or maybe one to bury themselves in. Anyone who actually knows what they're doing gets in and out of there in one trip, and usually before 7 a.m. Acutely aware of people I was borrowing who were quite literally on borrowed time, I was determined to make this adventure my quickest one yet. I shot down the contractor's entrance as fast as I could without running. Because that's ended very badly before at Heathrow Airport. Anyway, I grabbed a cart and headed toward the lumber aisle to get what I needed. Little did I know, I'd be getting way more wood than I bargained for. And in more ways than one. Ow! Fuck. What happened? It's fucking splinter. Ooh, let me get it out. No, let's just go. I want to get out of here. It wasn't the first time I had to put up with an unpleasant prick inside of me. I ushered the cart back toward the front of the store and pulled into a checkout line at the far end, immediately inspecting my finger. Fuck, it's really in there. Uh-oh, do you have a splinter in your finger? Laura and I both looked up to see two men in their early 30s staring directly at us. Now that I think about it, actually, if vague memory serves, I'm pretty sure Laura had already noticed them. Oh, hello. But I was too pissed to register her tone, which clearly indicated she'd spotted something very attractive to her. And for a straight girl at a Home Depot, it could only be one thing. The guy who verbally addressed us was blonde, looked like Leonardo DiCaprio circa 1997, which, let's be honest, was the best circa Leonardo DiCaprio, and spoke with a lilty Texas twain. He turned and handed a credit card to the other, who I presumed to be his boyfriend, standing at the card reader and interacting with the cashier underneath dark, shaggy brown hair. Okay, so I think I might have a tweezer in our truck. Do we still have those tweezers in the truck? Oh, you know what? I actually think I took them when I cleaned it out last night. But here, if you want, I'm really good at removing splinters with my nails. While I tend to be a people person, I would never describe myself as loving people. In fact, I actively try to avoid them at all costs. Mostly because I've been groomed to assume they either want something from me or they're out to get me. Thank you, Hollywood. So naturally, this proposition caused a bit of a deliberation in my head. I swear they're clean. And so am I. 
I mean, no one walks around Home Depot with a white shirt on and keeps it that clean. I know, right? Here, let me try. A few seconds later, the splinter was out. And while I was pretty sure it was obvious James was too, I had to admit, I found myself questioning it once he asked for our numbers and invited us out for drinks later that evening. At this point, I still hadn't made any friends in the desert, which is why being invited out by two relatively attractive gay guys that looked to be around my age should have been a no-brainer. But I'm a homebody with an easy scapegoat to blame my social anxiety on, and so I do, with nearly every opportunity I get. Yet there was something intriguing about James that pried open my mind just enough for Laura to crawl inside of it and turn my M.O. right on its head. Let's just go. You just moved here. Make some new friends. I know you think they're cute and all, but I'm pretty sure they're gay. Uh, we don't know that. I do. I don't think his friend is gay. Honestly, I think we should just go. Let's grab a drink, hang out for a little bit. You need new friends. (sighs) In the end, I really did it for Laura. After all, she'd been selfless enough to drive two and a half hours to work her ass off with me on her days off. The least I could do was treat her to a drink and some innocent flirting. Later that evening, we left my parents behind to watch reruns of NCIS, while we headed out to the saloon to meet strangers who, for all we knew, could very well turn our lives into a real-life episode. We found them sitting at a picnic table at the outdoor patio, underneath string lights and a scarce crowd of people drinking cocktails from plastic red cups. The whole scene was very reminiscent of an outdoor party whose word failed to reach as many people as intended. I took a seat across from James, while Laura took position across from Kevin, who turned out not to be James's boyfriend, but in fact, a straight friend of his for nearly 15 years. They'd met each other in Los Angeles, where they both worked in the entertainment industry, of course, until James's actual boyfriend chose to invest in a rental property that both he, James, and Kevin were designing and renovating nearby. So Kevin does most of the building and the hard stuff, and I design and spend the money. Well, that's the best part. It really is. So what do y'all do out here? Oh, I live in L.A. I'm just out here helping Rachel renovate her house. Oh, do you live out here? Sort of. I mean, not really. I I go back and forth between here and L.A. a lot, so I just, I rent it out when I'm not here. Very cool. And are y'all single? That was something I'd come to learn and love about James. He cut straight to the point. (laughs) Yes, very. Mmm, and Rachel, are you? I wanted to lie, to immediately put up a barrier to protect myself from any unwanted conversations, advances, or hookups. Being polite and feigning interest only made me miss my complacency with Kirk, and I needed to hold firm to my strict no-dating-or-intermingling policy until I was properly nursed back to mental health. But I'm also a terrible liar when I'm not getting paid to do it, so, yeah. Cool. Well, what about you guys? Well, not you, James. Just Kevin, I guess. Yeah, I'm taken. I'm single. Oh, you're a member of the Cool Kids Club, too. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to go run to the bathroom real quick. Anyone want another round? Sure. Why not? Once Kevin disappeared inside, James took the opportunity to explain his friend's quiet, introverted demeanor. Sorry my friend's being a little quiet and weird. Oh, he seems fine to me. He's just getting out of a relationship. Yeah, so am I. I get it. Well, maybe you two could take each other's minds off things, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's not a tough code to crack. I know, right? (laughs) Um, But Rachel, you're totally his type. I'm not really looking to date right now. 
well, y'all could just have some fun together. He just needs someone to bring him out of his shell, you know? He's been in such a funk since his breakup. Oh, well, in that case, I have zero interest. <laughs> no offense, that's just literally all I did in my last relationship. Oh, I'm taken. I totally get it. That's the worst. Though James may have been looking for a girlfriend for Kevin, what he actually ended up with that night was what we'd later come to call a desert wife. Metaphorically speaking, of course, because James clearly prefers dicks to clits. Over the next few months, whenever we were both in the desert and he was away from his boyfriend, James and I would meet up to shop, help each other with design conundrums, and have romantic dinner dates at Applebee's together. I felt like the other woman, or only woman, I guess, and was starting to understand why women become beards in the first place. Ours was the perfect relationship. Great company, undivided attention, similar hobbies and interests, and all without the pressures of sex. We were two peas in a pod, seemingly separated at birth and at long last reunited. We couldn't believe how long it had taken to find one another either, especially once we'd discovered how many mutual friends we'd had in L.A., he was everything I'd been looking for but could never quite find in Hollywood. Politically incorrect, spoke with zero filter, incapable of being offended, totally rational, and poised to infuse sex into every conversation he possibly could. Being around James gave me permission to relax and be myself after years of pretending to be every other kind of person than the one I actually was. A few months later, when James and Kevin had finally finished renovating their property, we arrived at the holidays. He invited me over for dinner to celebrate with Kevin, who had just returned from a long stint in Africa with his family, which made it the first time I'd seen him since the saloon that very night. By now, I was a lot less guarded thanks to my beautiful relationship with James that boosted my confidence and protected me from any unwanted advances. They showed me around the place, and I marveled at their talents for transforming it as much as they had. I couldn't help but feel a shift in the energy regarding my own life that night, recalling how earlier that year I'd been living with two quarreling gay guys and four dogs in a 1,000-square-foot apartment building. What a contrast to now, when I was being wined and dined under the stars of a luxury home in Joshua Tree that easily felt worth more than a mill. And so did I. I felt like I was back in the desert I grew up in, with solar lights twinkling in the darkness, silhouetting the mountains that created enough prestige and privacy for famous athletes and wealthy retirees to reside in. Unbeknownst to me, new goals were beginning to take shape in the depths of my subconscious. Goals that indicated a promise of security, peace, and serenity. Which is likely what made the email I was about to receive so off-putting. We had just settled into the living room after dinner with glasses of wine, Kevin sitting beside the fireplace, James beside me on the couch. It was 10.30 p.m., a couple of hours past my bedtime, but it felt like the night was just beginning. And for the first time in my life, I had the energy for it to continue. Shit. What is it? An audition. Oh, cool. For what? A guest star. Ooh, fun. Are you fucking kidding me? What? It's for 10 a.m. tomorrow. There's no way. You should just put yourself on tape. Yeah, we'll help you. I used to work in casting. I mean, I have all the gear. Yeah, and we run lines with our friend Cam all the time. He's an actor, too. You want to spread out the sides for you and we can help you run them? No, you, you don't understand. I, I have a process. I can't believe this. Seriously, who sends an audition at 10.30 at night with less than a 12-hour turnaround? Yeah, that's weird. And it's 14 pages? What show is this for? 
I don't even know. I have to, I have to go. I have to sober up so I can somehow memorize these. Then get enough sleep before I have to get up and get on the road to try to make it to LA by 10. This is fucking impossible. I'm sorry, I, I have to deal with this. Thank you for dinner. Luckily, the situation had been sobering enough for me to make it home safely. As I drove back to my house, I couldn't help but feel an anger swell in me like I'd never before experienced. Here I was, dropping everything I was doing to rush around the desert with less than 12 hours to prepare for a mediocre audition I cared way too much about for reasons I was completely unaware of. It felt like dating again in my 20s, bending over backwards for a guy I didn't even really like to approve of me in order to obtain my own sense of purpose and self. But the reality was, I wasn't in my 20s anymore. And any last shred of blissful ignorance I'd had died about 12 months earlier. It was the first time I'd had such a negative reaction to potential work. Probably because, for the first time, I was beginning to feel purpose outside of it. No longer able or willing to ignore the feelings of being taken advantage of and disrespected, I called my manager to discuss my options. Really? What industry professional sends out a 13-page audition on a Wednesday night at 10.30 p.m. for the next morning, I told him. If it had been pilot season, I might have had far more patience and forgiveness. But we were ramping up for the holidays, when Los Angeles goes into a three-month hibernation period. After our talk, I made the very bold decision to pass, which isn't bold at all. It just was for me. Whether I'd been privy to it or not, I wasn't just in the wake of creating boundaries in my personal relationships. I was beginning to establish them in business as well. It was rare to choose myself over work. And initially, it felt so foreign to me that it felt completely wrong. It didn't matter my manager completely supported my decision either. I felt incredibly guilty. And when those feelings I expected to have passed by the following afternoon were just as persistent, I couldn't help but obsess over why. Initially, I thought perhaps it was because I'd passed on an opportunity I should have been grateful to have, or that I'd acted like a spoiled, lazy child who didn't want to go to work because she wanted to have fun instead. When I thought back to my initial reaction to that email the night before, it didn't take long for me to realize that the guilt I'd been feeling was actually shame for having acted the way I did. I'd allowed my neuroses to go so far into overdrive that I'd stormed out of a social gathering I had little to no recollection of even leaving. What did I even say? What did I do? I immediately called James to apologize and explain myself. And while he assured me he'd hardly noticed, I couldn't help but feel like he was distancing himself from what I was sure he concluded to be a crazy, hot-headed actress. Needing to clear my head and assess the situation face-to-face, I figured I'd attempt to kill two birds with one stone and invited James out to meet me for a sound bath. It was something neither of us had ever done, but talked about doing for months, and I couldn't think of a better moment to recenter than now. We'd agreed to meet at the small yoga studio the ceremony was taking place in, at the center of town a few minutes before class started. Noticing an increasing amount of attendees and a dwindling amount of floor space, I decided to, quite literally, hold our ground and wait for James inside. The studio looked beautiful and the sunlight golden hour was filtering in through the window. Despite the amount of bodies inside, it was fairly silent, save for the wooden floorboards that occasionally creaked from bare feet as people made their way to mats and towels laid out around the room. 
A resounding smell of sage filled the air with its earthy fragrance, intended to clear out old energies while making space for new ones. Men and women dressed for a room without air conditioning settled their sun-kissed summer skin into their mats and began grounding themselves with audible breaths that, normally, caused my eyes to roll like a reflex in the face of such stereotypical on-the-nose behavior. Noticing the time and my discomfort, I sent James a text message. What's your ETA? I came inside because it was filling up. Fuck! I had a work emergency come up. So bummed. I really wanted to go. Let's link up later this week. If there had been any deliberation into whether or not I wasn't ready to start dating again, this would have been the nail in the coffin. I immediately wanted to break down in tears, convinced James no longer liked me, because of one silly little flaw I'd convinced myself had ruined everything. Desperate to keep my irrational and obsessive thoughts at bay, I tucked my phone away and followed in suit of my peers, settling into my mat but willing myself to disappear into the floor instead. Now, whenever people come to a yoga studio with friends, they simply sit on their mats facing one another, talking softly about the mundane problems in their mediocre life to pass the time until class begins. When you come by yourself to a yoga studio, where the hell do you look? How do you occupy yourself outside of your rambling thoughts? Stop it, I thought to myself. Stop overthinking every little thing in life. That's how you got into this whole mess to begin with. Just... Be here and relax. I closed my eyes, as if doing so might make all my problems disappear, or in the very least, make me invisible. And no sooner had I done that, was I saved by the bell. The minute our guide tapped his crystal bowl with a soft wooden mallet, it felt like everything else had disappeared. It's hard to describe a sound bath to someone who's never been to one. I guess I can try by stating that it really does feel like toxins are leaving your body and your soul is being cleansed, similar to the effects I imagine yoga or Pilates having. I wouldn't know for sure because those classes are geared towards people without ADD and neuroses, who have deep patience and the ability to hand over control without hesitation. It goes without saying, I'm not one of those people. Yet, I just said it. It's a popular understanding that meditation is best achieved through stretching and physical strengthening. I, however, prefer the lazier alternative, a sound bath, where all you do is lay there and breathe, and somehow, after allowing your ears to do all the work, you find yourself in that deeply meditative state. Within 15 minutes, I had inexplicable tears rolling down my temples and onto the mat underneath me. With orb-like sounds radiating off crystal bowls, Colorful pictures began to fill my head like a puzzle, trying to form a message I was supposed to receive. It was like looking through a kaleidoscope, or one of those 80s plastic binoculars with the paper disc of pictures you rotated with a click. As I viewed my thoughts like a silent movie, my body began to feel weightless. The floorboards underneath me buzzed with vibrating energy, creating the sensation as if I were floating or rising up to a higher state. Our guide had told us to set intentions prior to the ceremony commencing, and though I had, I was quite surprised to find myself receiving messages I hadn't expected, which I suppose is the point. I wanted direction, clarity with regard to my career or destiny, yet the only guidance I was getting was in the shape of a man. So annoying. But let's talk about him. 
He had dark hair, eyebrows that punctuated the rest of his face, and wore a black leather jacket. He had a strong energy that made him reserved without being a doormat, and was exceptionally alpha without being a misogynist. His face was familiar, but not familiar enough for me to recognize him clearly, almost like when you dream of someone's personality but their face is foreign. I knew only that I knew him and that he was the one. The one I was supposed to find and be with forever. And I knew that I was close. He put a helmet over his head and revved up his motorcycle. And that was it. By the end of the sound bath, I was shaken. So shaken, in fact, that it had completely shifted my focus away from James entirely. I'd become infatuated with, and maybe even a little perturbed by, my experience, and it began to consume me. I suppose a part of me was annoyed that after investing so much time and energy into myself and finding my purpose, my big awakening was about a man. That couldn't be the message I was supposed to receive. How could the universe be that antiquated, predictable, and boring, especially to an Aquarian? Nonetheless, I couldn't help but run down my roster of male friends and exes, wondering what relationship might resurface or transform into something else. Kirk was the obvious answer, but there was no way he was getting on a bike. The only three people it could have been were Ben, a friend of mine who'd been willing himself to stay faithful to a relationship that had already ended once before on account of his infidelity, Mark, who I'm convinced I'm related to somehow, so that wasn't going to happen, and Von Viaro. But I didn't really see that one panning out either since I'd learned about his true identity. Perhaps I'd been giving it all way too much credit, I thought. But the energy was so palpable I couldn't excuse it. By the middle of December, I'd let go of any credibility I'd given the experience. Things with James and I had gone back to normal because, for all intents and purposes, I had, and life was business as usual. Then, one night, as I crawled into bed, for reasons I still cannot explain, I opened up my Tinder app. Who knows? Maybe I just wanted some eye candy to pilfer through before I closed my eyes for the night. After all, orgasms in your sleep are the best, and what better way to posture for one? As I began swiping left and right to the point of feeling as though my thumb was being operated by some third party, I came across a picture that stopped me dead in my tracks. My thumb hovered over the image, like the light bulb that was hovering over my head. Oh my god. There he was. Dark hair, thick eyebrows, tall, strong. I scrolled to the next photo of him with his mother and grandmother having cocktails. The next a selfie, of him smiling in front of his motorcycle where a friend sat on top of his own bike beside it. Lastly, a picture of him posing with an elephant from his recent trip to Africa. Welcome back. Okay, so let's just get right into it because we have a lot to unpack here again. Um, this story, the reason I told you it, is very important because it was the moment when my life really started to come together in extremely unexpected ways. Let's recap really, really quickly about where we are right now in this journey. So 
Beginning from season one, episode one, we introduced the concept and idea of standards and boundaries. And by this point, I was really familiar with them. I had that checklist and that list in the back of my head every day that I was going into the world and making decisions, checking in, seeing how I felt about things. That was a very, very big accomplishment and a really, really hard task to kind of nail. Always a practice, but at least, you know, we get over the hard part to where we're familiar enough where it becomes second nature. At this point, we'd also become familiar with what toxicity is, what it looks like, what it looks like in our lives, how we attract it, how we avoid it, and how we successfully extract it from our lives. So at this point in my journey, at the time of this story that you've just heard, I was kind of starting on a clean slate. I'd gotten rid of a lot of friends, a lot of past relationships, a lot of business associates. I was starting over fresh. At this point also, I had spent a lot of time alone to discover who I was and what I really wanted out of life, what really fulfilled me outside of these masks that we recently talked about that so many of us hide behind. And lastly, most recently, what we've discussed is how spending that time alone to really get to know yourself and date yourself eventually leads to obtaining this power and freedom that comes with knowing yourself inside and out, really. So you walk around in life feeling a lot more empowered and in control. So at this point now, as I just said, I was rebuilding. I had leveled the ground, poured the foundation. This foundation was much more sturdy and stable than anything I'd ever experienced before. And last week, we talked a lot about (laughs) vaginal health (laughs) and, um, you know, the difference between guys and girls just anatomically and kind of the choices, situations, and conflicts and inner conflicts it brings up for women specifically. And for me, I was really confronted with, hey, what do you want your life event goals to be? Life events like marriage, having kids, buying a house, these big things that, you know, insurance companies define as life events. Those were goals I hadn't necessarily considered as much as I had my career goals. So when I kept getting confronted with the same thing in a different capacity every time I went to the gynecologist – It forced me to look at the choices I was making in my life timeline-wise and and time is something I never really considered or paid attention to, which I think is good and bad because I think that's what keeps people young at heart. You shouldn't feel the burden of time. But like I discussed last week, you have to consider time because if you don't, you might miss out on something you later realize you really, really wanted. And if only you knew, you shoulda, woulda, coulda. So... At this point, I was starting to really mull over what I wanted the next phase of my life to look like. Did I seriously want to get married? Did I see myself with a family and children? I mean, the most unexpected part of this story was really even putting my career under a microscope and analyzing how that was making me feel, which we'll get to in a second. But one of the things that I've never actually discussed, whether in a story or in the commentary, was my breakup with Kirk. And I think what I ultimately realized was that I needed to what ultimately boiled down to choose myself over him, which is a very, very, very difficult thing to do. First of all, there's a reason I've always been broken up with and not been the breaker upper. I am way more comfortable bearing the brunt of rejection than I am rejecting someone. That probably has everything to do with auditioning in my career. But uh, 
it was a really, really hard thing for me to admit to myself and then admit to Kirk. Just like, hey, this isn't working. I'm not happy. I don't want to resent you. And at the end of the day, you're not giving me the things that I want a partner to give me. And I know that if I want those things in my life, I have to choose those things and then go about and obtain them. In other words, find a person that is going to have those qualities or have a similar timeline and similar goals to me. That was really, really, really hard to do because there was no loss of love. It was a very strong relationship in the sense where we were best friends, which is a key ingredient to successful relationships and marriages. But there were just things that weren't perfectly aligned. And there were so many times after the breakup where I constantly questioned whether or not I made the right choice. I forgot what I called this before. But because the the universe will constantly test you when you make a declaration. So at this point, I was like, nope, this isn't the person I want. I want someone like this. So then the universe would test me. And in my quest to find that person, it would make me feel as though that person didn't exist. So then I would go back and question the choice that I made. And suddenly that person I left seemed to look way better than I remembered them looking when I left. (laughs) And that's the universe testing you to make sure like, no, no, you said this. Do you really mean this? Do you mean this enough to ignore how, how good that looks in the review mirror to keep pressing forward? And honestly, there were times for me where I really didn't know. And I'm sure that many women feel that way. But here's what I can say. For as much as I thought, you know, I was being too fickle or having too high of standards, I was like, this person cannot exist. Like all of these qualities that I want, I'm going to have to compromise on something. But here's the thing. When you're not burdened by time, at least from my experience, when I wasn't burdened by time, I wasn't worried about whether that person existed or not. I wasn't worried about finding them. I thought I'm either going to find them or I'm going to have a really great happy life alone because that's the choice I've been making recently and it's been pretty fucking great. And lo and behold, I ultimately found that person and I, I found them because I wasn't looking. Last season, I um, referenced a documentary called Misrepresentation. It's over 10 years old now, still equally relevant. But they talked about in that documentary how most movies that are aimed at a uh, male demographic audience, the storyline is about a man finding his purpose and identity and his it's his quest and journey in life. Whereas for the female audience, it's about finding a mate. So what I really, really liked about my choice to make the journey that I was, was I'm like, I want to live like a guy in that aspect. I want to go out on a quest to fulfill my purpose and and discover my destiny. It was such a great journey, but it was not without struggle or sacrifice or heartache or difficulty or discomfort. And the first step in going out and doing this was I was fortunately in a position to afford a house. And if you've been a listener of this podcast from the beginning in season one, you remember those episodes, how I even came about buying the house, and that was even unexpected. But I had made this choice in my head that I was ready to take the next step to go into the next chapter of life. And I think even to this day, if I'm being honest, I'm still kind of 
I'm up to my neck in the water of the new chapter, but I haven't fully taken the plunge. It's been a very slow burn and I've had to really like adjust and get used to the waters, which usually I just jump in, which might be why this worked. This was atypical behavior for me, again, born out of mental health care and breaking these old patterns that weren't serving me or bringing me the happiness. So I was doing things completely different. So I bought the house and that afforded me a lot of opportunity to be alone and navigate my way through the world independently without noise. This noise that we talked about a couple episodes ago. It was the proof that I needed once I was able to actually do and make that kind of a transaction. It was the proof that I needed to know that I was totally capable of doing things on my own and it allowed me to further trust myself moving forward from then until this day, honestly. I got comfortable with my plan of being alone. Again, I keep emphasizing how fortunate I am because I know not everyone is in this position and quite frankly, I didn't even think that I could be. Home prices were so expensive out here, out here meaning Los Angeles, that I didn't, I just never thought that there was a way I was going to own a home. I was like, I'm a forever renter and I'm comfortable with that. But when I was able to have the home and see that like, hey, I don't need a guy to buy a house. I don't need a guy to be financially stable. I don't need a guy to have fun. I don't need a guy to support me emotionally. It was just, I don't need a partner. Of course, I wanted one. But for me, I'd always been going into relationships with a need, a need for completion or balance or safety or stability. It was totally lost on me before I went on this journey that I could provide all of those things for myself and just be in a relationship for fun. (gasps) Shocking, I know. But those are the relationships that work. That is the fucking secret. And the way to get and obtain that secret is to buck up, suck it up, Take the dive and do the uncomfortable hard work to prove to yourself that you are a full person and you don't need someone else to complete you. Which is, of course, in the best form of irony that there is, why I ended up meeting a guy right at that moment. (laughs) So when I met the guys at Home Depot, um, look, I kind of said it in the story. I'm a little introverted is the way I'll say it. I'm not somebody that And this is something I'm working on. I'm not somebody that innately will... I used to be, actually. I I would randomly talk to people on checkout lines. And after so many looks of like I was a crazy person for even daring to connect with them, I kind of stopped. So eventually, I went from looking people in the eyes to just looking down and avoiding eye contact at all costs because that meant I didn't have to engage with somebody and I could just get in and out and knock things off my to-do list a lot quicker. Which is totally how I went into Home Depot that day. And thank God I had my friend with me to kind of curtail that. Because otherwise, those of you that know how this story ends, I don't even know where my life would be right now. (laughs) I certainly wouldn't be able to connect these dots for you on this podcast, that's for certain. But I didn't really, I had no interest in being social. Really, my whole main objective was finish this house, go through kind of this personal journey of discovery and awareness, go back to LA and live my life as usual with another source of income to where there wasn't so much pressure writing on my auditions because I was believing like that was getting in the way of me being able to do my work. And so I just really wanted to get it done super, super quick and fast. I wasn't interested in building a community or even much of a life for myself out here at the time. 
That's why I didn't want to go out for drinks either. It felt like a waste of time. But thank God we did. But here, for many for many reasons, just because of the way the story ends, but also the lessons I learned just even in that first night going out with them. So after Kevin got up and went to the bathroom and James was kind of pushing Kevin on me in the most, you know, non-pushy way, I was kind of overcompensating for having prioritized dating so much in my prior life that I was overcompensating and definitely throwing a guard up to make it very, very well known that I was not going to be even entertaining the idea of like making out with somebody. Just because I I knew that it was a slippery slope for many reasons. One, I was I was still thinking a lot about Kirk. Like I mentioned at the top of this commentary, I was questioning whether or not I made the right decision, especially in moments of loneliness or discomfort, such as meeting new men who might be interested in me. All it did was make me miss what I had. Why? Because I was afraid of what could be or what it could lead to. Which Tony Robbins, for those of you who know of him, he's like a motivational speaker and life coach. He makes some really good points and one of them is in order to make a huge radical lifestyle change, your pain pleasure ratio has to be right. So in other words, like I'll use my addiction to sugar as an example. So I would break out a lot when I had too much sugar and I had to associate pimples as more painful than the pleasure I got from the satisfaction of eating sugar in order to stop eating sugar. So your pain pleasure balance has to be tipped a specific way in order for you to make certain decisions and really effectively change your life. So at the time, I was fearing the negative effects of being in a relationship. So like feeling pain and rejection and sadness. I was fearing that more than I was looking at the possibility for love and euphoria and happiness. And I just knew that I I wasn't in a stable enough place emotionally to potentially put myself in a situation where negative things could happen and then I would just feel that much worse. So I really wanted all of them to know that I was off the market without being, you know, off the market. And one of the things that James specifically said that made it a lot easier for me to like put that wall up was he was like, oh, you know, Kevin just needs someone to to get him out of his shell and help him get out of this funk he's been in since his last relationship. And for me, that had a nerve because I had felt like a band-aid to so many guys I dated. I felt like a placeholder. Like I was way more invested in a lot of the relationships than my partners were. And every time the emotional beatings I felt like I was taking – just it was like too much and I didn't want to deal with it anymore. So the minute he said that, I was like, nope, I am not going to be a band-aid. It is not my job, my duty, my obligation to make somebody's life easier because nobody's tried to make my life easier. It was, and, and of course, James didn't mean anything by this. But by this point, I'd done so much work where I was like, no, I know how I am. I know my dynamics. I know my patterns. I know that this is inclined to happen. And if it does happen, this is how I'm going to feel. And it's just a huge regression. And I'm all about moving forward right now. A lot of girls, and I used to be one of them, will look at a guy and be like, oh, he's he's hurting, he's in pain. It's okay, I'll help him forget about his ex. And the danger with that is that, as we've talked about, 
There's an immediately an expectation. You know, I had this friend that dated this guy and this guy kept saying, I don't want to be in a relationship. I don't want to be in a relationship. And she's like, yeah, 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 I hear you. But then she kept acting like they were in a relationship. And then when they broke up, she was really, you know, upset and heartbroken and felt like he led her on. And I couldn't say this to her at the time, but I was like, no, at no point did he lead you on. He kept telling you he didn't want a relationship. You kept thinking that you could change his mind. And that's very dangerous because it almost always ends up badly for the person who thinks that they can change someone. And by the way, you should never want to change somebody. I think that's why I said two stories ago, you know, I didn't want a fixer-upper anymore. I wanted somebody that was already done and ready. Because in addition to feeling like a band-aid, it made me feel like I just, you know, was a fluffer. I got the guy ready for the next girl. And then she got the best parts of him, which good for her, but I certainly didn't feel great about it. And we, we don't want to have to keep going through that cycle and feeling... That's what makes us resentful and get called a bitch in a bad way. That's totally it. And we completely have the power at our disposal and within us to put an end to that. We don't need somebody else to act a certain way. We just put the kibosh on it from the beginning because we're in control of ourselves. So anyway, suffice it to say, like, I was overcompensating for the boundaries that I once lacked because I was really excited about deep down and committed to building a life for myself, continuing to build this life for myself without the complications of of romance until I was ready, until I wasn't vulnerable anymore and I could, you know, stand a little more solidly on my own two feet. Dating was the furthest thing from my mind, which is why that sound bath experience was so fucking infuriating when I had that kind of like uh, vision of a guy. But we'll get we'll get into that in a minute. Let's talk about right now um, kind of what happened when I went to the guy's house for the first time. So this was the first time I actually felt like an adult. I, you know, was walking into someone's house in an area that felt very similar to the rural community I grew up in in high school. So it felt it felt really adult and they people use this term of playing house when like a couple lives together but they're not married they're just acting like husband and wife well this for me was like playing house because it was like oh my god we don't have apartments like we have actual homes oh my god we're acting like adults it was so funny to me because I still didn't actually feel like a full functioning adult but to be around people my age in a similar place in life doing the same things it was like all of a sudden I had this objective perspective on what I was doing and the actions I was taking and they were very adult actions. I just didn't see myself as a grown-up yet, which I think this whole season is really about becoming an adult. And and it's such a bummer, but but it's really beautiful at the same time. So when I walked into their house and I just I just saw all the beauty, all I saw was possibility. It was nothing but inspirational possibility. And it really, really excited me. It was so vastly different from the past 20 years of my life where, you know, life was kind of mundane. It was glamorous in Hollywood, but it was a little mundane and routine. And this was really like sparkly and exciting to me and was really fulfilling a desire and need I had that I wasn't even aware of at the time until I walked into this house. And really what it was indicative of was that I was entering a new phase in my life, as I said before. And in this phase of my life, I was kind of looking in the rearview mirror a lot. I was appreciating my parents more. I was understanding why 
certain friendships of mine in the past fizzled out and faded and we grew apart, you know, because life happens. People buy houses and suddenly their life changes. People get married and suddenly their life changes. But when you're single, renting an apartment, doing the same thing, and your friend gets married or has kids or buys a house, you sort of feel like they're leaving you behind. And it's really hard to not take it personally when those things happen because you're like, oh, I, I guess I'm just not on their level anymore and I can't relate. And being on the other side of it now, I realize it's like, it's it's not personal at all, first of all, but when your life becomes, I remember my my sister became a mom, and everyone else for that matter, their first kid. It was like all they ever fucking talked about was what the kid did, or even when they were pregnant, what their nipples were doing. I was like, I don't care. I don't. I'm sorry that sounds insensitive. Why? Because I can't relate. And so naturally, those people pick up on that and they start talking to their other friends with swollen ass nipples using cocoa butter or whatever the hell they're doing. But everyone's life, we talk about time again, moves in a different pace. So just so you guys know where I'm at now, all of a sudden, it's like I just reconnected with my old high school friend. The relationships that are tried and true and real, they will always come in and out of your life and you will pick back up like you never separated. At this point, I was starting to kind of associate more with people who had houses. They had a higher level of responsibility than my friends back in the city. They had a stronger work ethic because they had to for monetary reasons and time restrictions. So I was kind of entering a different world and it was a world I felt a little more relaxed and comfortable in and safer in is really what it was. I felt safe. And I think that's why I was so grossly offended when this audition came in. What I didn't realize at the time was that I was reacting to a feeling that I now know as a, a boundary breaking. I didn't really know, oh, that's what that feeling is. I'm having a boundary break right now. I knew what those looked like after they happened, but in real time, it was very hard to recognize. And I think what I ultimately, you know, surmised from the situation was that is what was happening. I felt like someone had broken my boundary, but I didn't understand that specifically at the time. And I didn't understand how to repair it really quickly. I didn't even know how to handle it. Clearly, I had this total overreaction and this outburst and I acted like a child, which is really, really fascinating psychologically speaking. Because here I was in this adult world feeling very comfortable and then I was just like, jousted back into this kind of infantile behavior and a, a very odd reaction. It, but, but the thing is, I didn't know that it was odd at the time. It was typical for me. That was how I reacted when I felt my time wasn't being respected, which was most often confronted in the form of getting auditions where I didn't feel like I had enough time to prepare. Which, by the way, this is just how I function as a human. Like, I'm not the kind of person that's like gets a call and they're like, hey, you want to meet for drinks in an hour? No, I don't. I need at least 48 hours to like prepare for that. I'll give you an example. We went out with some friends last night and we met up at nine o'clock. When the sun goes down, so do I. I just don't, it's like really tough to get me out of the house. And I had known all week that Friday we're going to go out at nine o'clock at night. 
So I I put my reserves on and I plan my schedule accordingly so that I know I won't be tired on Friday at 9 o'clock and I will have the stamina to go out and drink until 2 in the morning like we did. So I need that kind of preparation just for me to function or I get super, super thrown off and frazzled. Well, that doesn't work when you're an auditioning actor in Hollywood. (laughs) So that was always kind of like a character flaw, personality trait I had that was in direct opposition to what my job demanded. And at this point in my life, on this night that we're talking about in the story, it was really confronted. I'd been doing all this work to really figure out who I am, what I want, what makes me comfortable, what makes me uncomfortable, what makes me tick. And all of a sudden, here was something coming up work-related, and that was the thing, is I'd never realized that I was in a completely boundaryless relationship with my job. So... I felt like I had worked on the relationships romantically and friendship-wise pretty pretty well to where I had a grip on it. But because of that, all of a sudden I was seeing where I didn't have boundaries in stark contrast in other areas, one of which was, as I said, my career. When you're an actor or actress, there's this silent understanding that you can't say no until you're at a certain level. But until you are, you feel like you can't say no because that will lead to a lack of opportunity. And I don't know if these feelings are justified or not, but I know without question that every actor feels this way to some degree before they're at a certain level of their career. Again, I want to reiterate that. But you also feel like there's heavy competition. So if you're not constantly in front of casting directors or constantly auditioning, you'll just fall through the cracks and be forgotten. You're worried that you'll get a bad reputation. You won't be taken seriously or you'll be seen as unlikable, disagreeable, or difficult. And what I mean by you you not being taken seriously is representation will just think, well, you know, if your career was really your priority, you would always be available for this no matter what. And then you can be dropped by your representation eventually. So you don't really feel like you have much of a say. It's just be here at this time, no ands, ifs, or buts. And of course, there are some exceptions, but they're like hall passes. You can't use them all the time, again, or you fear that it's, it's gonna, you're going to get reprimanded in a way that results in a lack of work or opportunity. So a perfect example of this was at the time... I was really spending most of my time in Joshua Tree, and my agents had no idea. That's why this audition was so tricky. It came in so late at night that I couldn't call them and be like, yeah, can I just put myself on tape because I'm actually in the desert? Or I couldn't be like, yeah, I'm going to pass on this because I'm actually in the desert living my life. I thought that that would communicate to them, wait, what? You're Why are you spending so much time in the desert? Are you not as available now? Are you not as serious about your career? Should we not be sending you out so much? I felt like I was hiding and lying and keeping secrets because I was. And the saddest part about it was is I was keeping secrets and hiding and lying about things that were making me genuinely happier to serve this thing that really, you know, made me feel like a prisoner a lot of times in the way I was going about it. I didn't have control over myself in my career. And these are not necessarily coming out of thin air, these fears, they are things that are more or less being communicated to me by the people that I'm represented by. I mean, I had someone basically tell me that if I bought my house in Joshua Tree, I might as well just stop acting. And I was like, what? And for the record, I also had people tell me the same thing if I got married or had kids, you might as well just kiss your career goodbye. And I heard these things from a very young age. So 
again, reasons why I delayed thinking about achieving these life events at all. Because I had to surrender them all in order in my head to become a successful actor in my industry which is really, really unhealthy and really sad. And I'm not saying that that's how every actor feels. I'm certain every actor feels that way to some degree at some point. I felt it exponentially through my core all the time. And what was ironic at this point, truly, was I had I'd been so convinced that I had to prioritize acting and be readily available like a doctor on call 24-7 that when I finally created a team around me that made a safe space for me to go back and forth to the desert and not worry about it and put myself on tape and it's okay to pass and you don't need this. I did not trust it for a minute because I'd been so brainwashed. I was like, they're just saying this. They're just saying this. They don't really mean it. Which is why when my manager was so fine with me passing on the particular audition that came in, I felt so bad. I felt very guilty for saying no. I felt like I was doing something wrong. I felt like I was setting myself up for disaster. But really what was going on was this. Something came in at 1030 when really I could have been asleep. And it was for something that they wanted me to have 14 pages prepared by 10 a.m. the next day. Even if I had been in Los Angeles, that's just not setting someone up for success. And so if you were to if I were to get that same audition now, I wouldn't have reacted the way that I did, but I would have said, "Nope, I'm going to pass on this because this doesn't feel like I'm being set up for success. This doesn't feel like worth my time and energy to hurry up and throw together like a half-ass performance that I'm going to feel bad about because I didn't have enough time to prepare." I would just simply say no because those are now the boundaries that I've created for myself in my career. But again, at the time, I didn't have them. Plus, there's also this this enormous guilt you feel <laughs> when, when you do pass on an opportunity because you're so aware of all these other people that would kill just to have the opportunity. Anyhow, the reason why this specific incident is really important and why I'm talking about it so much is because, as I said earlier, this is a two-part story. So the next part of this chapter will continue next week. And Kevin and I will be discussing this specific audition in this moment. It is a very poignant moment in our relationship because it represented and revealed so much. But like I said, we'll get into that next week. So remember that moment. So all of this is to say it's really important to know what makes you happy and how being unhappy affects your life all around. I was finding happiness in several areas of my life and finding an enormous amount of purpose outside of work. And we talked about in the chapter titled Grounded and the story titled Grounded, we talked about masks and identity and how these masks manifest so these masks will look like your name your age your where you're from your profession those are all things that people and us use to define who we are but you can't you can't define who someone is in a term you can get a sense of who they are in a general case but you can't really really know them so we actually have this group of renters staying at our airbnb right now and it's, it's really interesting to see how people communicate. They're from Los Angeles. And the first thing they say is, we work in TV and we have a Friday off. And Kevin and I were like, why did they feel the need to tell us they work in TV? That's so weird. Just say, I finally got a Friday off. Like, cool. Like, 
her working in TV was not relevant to anything. It wasn't knowledge that we needed. You know, we talked about it later and I thought this is, it's so fascinating because we are really so, it's so deeply implanted in us that that will reveal and inform people so much about who we are. But the, the point is like, she was saying that to impress us and she doesn't know that Kevin and I both worked in film and television like it it doesn't impress us like that's just our lives we've been around it it's you know we've seen behind the curtain so to speak so it's not glamorous and exciting and impressive to us but it shouldn't be to anyone really because to me that doesn't make you any better or worse of a person than you know the guy that picks up my trash because what does that mean that you do that for a living. It means nothing. Like, I want to know who you are. So I just wanted to point that out because it's something that I don't even think people realize they're doing half of the time. And you don't, you don't need to do it. Like, find who you are outside of those things. So many of us don't know who we are outside of those things, which is one of the blessings in disguise of this pandemic as I think it actually brought a lot of that to light for a lot of people. Again, because they were forced to spend so much time at home alone. But this was something that started to happen around this time too, as it was kind of like oil and water separating. It was like the more awareness and evolved I was getting on my journey, I became more informed about the people who weren't, who were falling behind, right? We were growing apart in this evolutionary way where I was like, oh, you're not, you're not there yet. You don't get this or you can't relate to me on this or I can't share this part of me with you because I don't think you could handle it yet or they showed me that they couldn't but what it ultimately translated into was I started to really significantly and vividly see who was healthy in their heads and who wasn't and one of the things I expressed to my therapist at the time was I was starting to feel really really lonely amongst the people that I did still have in my circle because I was starting to see the ways that they weren't well and and it's really really hard because Again, we talk about it's not your responsibility to fix, change, or do anything for anyone except for yourself. So I am very much for observing how people are struggling, but it's not my job to help them. I can give advice if it's asked, and if they take it, great. If they don't, oh well. But I can't get invested in it, and I can't make a difference because at the end of the day, it's up to that person to make the change, not me. And I think it was really, really hard to watch people suffer, feeling like I knew how to lead them out of the dark, but they weren't ready to be let out of the dark. And it's it's painful to watch. Mothers listening everywhere know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like watching your kid make mistakes you know they have to make in order to learn the lesson and grow. But you can't interfere with that because that's their journey. That's their process. Being in Los Angeles in that kind of an environment and having those experiences obviously brought me to the desert more and more because the desert was a place I went to for healing and feeling positive whereas Los Angeles was starting to feel more and more as a city very toxic I now learned what toxicity was what it felt like what it did to me how it affected me in my day-to-day routine so I was starting to get really resentful of Los Angeles as a city and of my career and I, I didn't really have a conscious understanding as to why or what that was about, why I acted out in times where I felt violated and it was really because I didn't have a grip on it and um, I didn't have boundaries implemented. I didn't even consider implementing boundaries at this point and I, and I was recognizing on a subconscious level 
that because I was so happy in the desert in this new phase of life, I was really feeling the unhappiness in this old phase of life where all of these things weren't making me feel good. Similar to how I felt in relationships, romantic relationships. Because I'd already been through that evolution in a different realm and I was starting to recognize that, oh fuck, this is happening in another area in my life as well. It's not enough to just do it in one sector. You have to do it across the board. Again, when we're breaking patterns, it takes a long time. We're talking about evolution and growth and that that happens in its own time. So here's what was fascinating to me about this sound bath experience. When James canceled on me and I started spiraling, I think that was so indicative of where I was in an emotional place and how I was dealing with rejection, which again, to remind people, is something that happens being an actor. So I was extremely sensitive to rejection and this, looking back now, this is why this is so fun to do this podcast because I see things I didn't until I write. This moment was kind of when I started noticing a different pattern that I had, which was <laughs> spiraling out of control um, in, in a moment of feeling rejected or not good enough or inadequate or like I did something wrong. So in this case, I felt like because I had the outburst at James's house and they were so adult, which was my perception at the time, that's not a backhanded compliment. <laughs> They're amazing and they are adults. But in, in my head, not knowing them like I do now, they seemed, you know, you don't know. You have an idea of people and then you come to, to learn and they're way more down to earth and, and cool than I ever could have imagined. But when I had that outburst in front of James and Kevin, I thought they were totally turned off by me. They think I'm a child because I acted like one and they're distancing themselves. That was the narrative I had going in my head. And I was like, oh my God, I have to prove to them that that's not the case. And and I could feel like my spiral starting. And that was the whole reason I even wanted James to come to the sound bath is I just I needed to have like a face-to-face connection and kind of show that I was normal and cool and everything was all good and I wasn't a psychopath right but what I realized it was like so fortuitous that I was at a sound bath when all this was happening when I had like just crippling anxiety because I realized in this moment that it was all a narrative I didn't know them And I didn't know what he was thinking. He really could have had something come up with work. I needed to trust that. And anytime I started to feel my anxiety swell, I would cut myself off. That had become a new practice I was implementing where if I started to feel like I was about to spiral or my thoughts were getting the best of me or taking over, I would be like, okay, you're not allowed to talk to or reach out to that person for a couple days. Because I knew I needed to like calm down and get clarity because I was having an emotional reaction instead of a logical one. And that became a rule I made for myself. I'm like, no one's going to care if they don't hear from you for a couple days, but you are not allowed to reach out until you are mentally sound and emotionally calm. And that eventually was something that really paid off in the end. But this was when it started. And I know that now listening back and looking back. Then I proceeded to have this crazy vision for the record, really glad that I ended up having this experience totally by myself because I think it absolutely would have been affected and I needed this moment. I'm in there alone, which causes so much anxiety, which you heard in the writing. I'm worried I'm going to look like a loser because I'm not there with friends, which doesn't matter. Go alone. It's the best. 
But I genuinely expected to have this kind of, he, he asked us to set an intention. And so my intention was about my career. And I, I genuinely was like expecting to have this kind of, not necessarily like an epiphany, but like an awareness or a vision or, or something having to do with the intention I set. So I was really confused when it didn't. And I was super annoyed that it was a dude. I was like, really? Because the way I interpreted it was I was like, Jesus, I am so focused on finding a guy. It's been so long and I'm doing so much deprogramming. It's so embedded in me that like it's coming out of me subconsciously. It's seeping out of me as much as I don't want to give it attention. It's just there. So it was so fucking infuriating. But at the same time, it was really... Is very spiritual and strange. Like I hear a lot of times with with people recalling their near-death experiences, these kind of visions or sensations or experiences they have. This was along those same lines. It certainly wasn't the same thing, but it definitely felt like I was making a connection with something beyond. That's what I'll say. And I knew I couldn't say that to anybody without sounding like a crazy person. So the reason I think this this, uh, romantic vision came in Truly what I realized is because I feel like I had successfully done so much work on becoming a whole person before going into a relationship that the waters were calm and I was clear and the channels were open. So I was open to receiving things. This is really hard to like do this commentary for a two-parter because I'm like, "Mm, what do I want to say now? And what do I want to revisit next story? But um. I felt like I had the vision and then obviously once I saw Kevin's photo, I had the holy shit moment. The light bulb went off. I was like, it's him. And it was, it was like finding something that's lost. I don't know how to describe it. It was that kind of a satisfaction. I was like, that kind of a, I know it. Like it's, oh, I dropped this penny. I picked it up. I know this is the penny I dropped. It was that feeling of like, I know this is the man. I know this is the man from the vision. And I know that this vision came from beyond. And I'm also aware of how crazy that sounds. But I really believe in what I'm telling you guys and I really believe that this is a result of tapping into your higher self, relying on your intuition, trusting yourself. After you do all this self-work with the relationship you have within, all of these things are possible. I really believe that. And I think that this was sort of the great beyond basically introducing, okay, you're ready now. Here's the information. Okay, here's the missing puzzle piece. What are you going to do with it now? And it was unlike anything I'd experienced because it, it felt like someone handed me like a glass egg and I knew that this was the only one I was going to get and I couldn't drop it. But at the same time, I didn't feel pressure handling it. I didn't feel precious with it in the sense where I was afraid I was going to break it or lose it. It was the first time where I was like, I've been handed something so valuable and I trust myself to take the value from it while honoring it in its complete form. I think the reason I wasn't going to ever get some magical answer with regard to my career was that I couldn't without having done the specific work in that area of life. And I had done the work in this romantic area, so I was ready. And this is really the perfect testament to manifestation in the best of ways. You set an intention which in this case, it was, I want to be a whole person on my own and find my purpose like a man and embark on my own journey and live my best life. 
So you set that intention and then all of a sudden you start on this path of interrupting old patterns, learning from your past mistakes, making different choices, having different routines, analyzing things in a way you haven't before, making some difficult decisions, spending some time alone. And all of a sudden, all your hard work, you finally get the reward. And when you get it, it's like, oh my God, it's here. Not only do you have it, there's this really, really great excitement you feel of... I know I'm not going to fuck this up and I get to finally fucking enjoy the journey for once. And I think for me, that's really what this relationship that I inevitably went on with Kevin was, is it was a relationship that I genuinely got to enjoy. Why? Because I was a whole person. He, however, was not yet. And that was kind of the thing when I was like, I don't know what I want to tell you guys in this episode or next. I'm going to save it for next episode because I think that really is the emphasis of that particular story is timing in a relationship when one person's ready and the other person isn't and how you deal with that because we did and it it's hard and it's tricky and you have to be really fucking honest with yourself and the other person. As I mentioned, knowing what makes you happy and how it affects other areas of your life is really important because like you'll hear next next week, it really can gravely affect the direction of your life and the direction your life takes. So that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this story and this commentary. I've been really, really excited to share it with you guys because this was kind of the pinnacle of success, I think, in my mental health journey. And um, it was a long time coming. And I really want people to experience the freedom and the joy and the happiness that I've obtained, not just in the relationship. As I said, this was just the start of all the ways I did the same things in one area of my life in other areas of my life. And that method has worked in every single facet of life. So this is just how it started. And I hope that you guys are inspired to go on your own journey to experience the same glorious results. So... We'll be back next week, as I said, with part two of this story. Until then, remember to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And please tell your friends about us so that we can continue to grow this awesome community. Uh, you can send us your feedback, questions, and comments to info at howbitchesaremade.com. And you can follow me at the Rachel Melvin. I want to give a special thank you to those who helped us with our reenactments for this episode. They are Laura Aguallo, James LeGrop, Kevin Barrett, and of course, the man, the myth, the legend, Steve Tom. Remember, consistency is key. Stay bitchy, my friends, and we'll see you next week. How Bitches Are Made is written and produced by Rachel Melvin.